Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on FM Riverside and 1050 Today we're going from uh, D-Day to uh, now shoot for the moon and uh, how, how different could it be? Yeah, well, it's all fake news. So we're we're talking with the author. Great book. I've been listening to it. Um, and I, I, that's the only thing I can say. It's a, I recommend it totally. Um, anyway, uh, Jim Donovan, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Well, now let's start out with what brought you to writing about Apollo 11 and just the whole moon um, aspect and putting a book out? Yeah, good question. A few, a few points. Um, you know... Uh, most people living today were not alive or, or let's say, old enough to remember the first moon landing, 1969. The median age in this country is somewhere around 38. So the vast majority of people living today were not alive for it. And even worse than that, an alarmingly large number of them don't even believe it really happened. I don't know how that happened, but, uh, you know, it's part of this increasing strain of anti-science I see but anyway, I thought a lively and a accurate account of the event was sorely needed to kind of counter that trend and remind people of this spectacular event. That's one point. Another one is, it's just a great story. Not only, I think, uh, the greatest technological achievement of all time, I think it beats the Panama Canal and the Great War, I mean, the Great Wall, uh, all, to, all to heck, but um, it's a great 
story of adventure and exploration. And, you know, there's the phrase, American exceptionalism, that's uh, been kind of hijacked in recent years. And I think this is uh, an example of American exceptionalism in the most positive sense. And the third reason is, when I was a kid, I loved science fiction in space, reading about it, watching it on TV and in movies, and these guys are my heroes. When someone suggested this idea, I just couldn't say no. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty interesting. And, and just you saying that made me think um, about science fiction. Like, I'm in my 50s, and I remember I loved all the old science fiction movies and shows and the space race and the whole deal. Um, nowadays, it's, there's a totally different outlook on, on science and space, and there's all sorts of craziness. So um, I just wonder, I just see how that's changed. It's almost like people are living the fantasy now, you know? Um, well, you know, it's, I don't think, uh, the good thing is that I haven't seen, I don't think, I don't think it's just me. I, I, I think it's a fact. I just don't haven't seen this much interest in space and space travel and exploration since um, since the Apollo 11 moon landing. You see it in movies, books, TV. There's so many shows on it. And, you know, all the commercial aspects with SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic, and other companies. Um, I'm still gobsmacked by that image of, you know, the Tesla with the astronaut in it cruising around the earth. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, boy, that is, that's got to be one of the greatest advertising gimmicks of all time. But, I mean, it just points up the fact of you know, how much interest there is in this. Uh, you know, what Musk has done, he overpromises sometimes and doesn't, uh, you know, reach his grandiose deadlines, but he's getting a lot done. And uh, I bet you anything, he goes to the moon before NASA's proposed 2032 mission. Well, yeah, you know, um, you know, whoever's got the best TV set will get there first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, but there's so much interest in space and space travel, and uh, you know, there's also, um, as we mentioned, the, the commercial aspects of it. Um, NASA, uh, its budget, you know, at the time in the mid '60s, at the height of the space race, and uh, in the middle of Apollo. Uh, its budget was something like almost 5% of the national budget, if you can believe that. Unbelievable. Because it was a high-priority thing. Uh, but right after that, it, it tumbled, and now it's something like half a percent. Mm. So uh, NASA has always had these great plans and dreams, but they just haven't had the budgets to put them into implementation. And now, you know, the, these, these billionaires with their companies are uh, working with NASA and you know, they're going to make it happen yeah. sooner rather than later, I think. Yeah, and one thing about this, I, I, you know, we, we just did the Chernobyl uh, show, and I found it to be similar in the sense that there's always this, especially in the 60s, a huge race of, uh, of, of the U.S. and Russia, and that was in having a nuclear, a nuclear reactor and a plant that run energy first, and, and this one, the Cold War also brought on this between Russia and, and the U.S. to get to space. And, and, and there was a real panic um, that Russia was ahead uh, of the U.S. And um, so that I found that to be one of the most interesting aspects, even about the Apollo 11 and the book. Well, as you know, you've read enough of the book. Um, I 
whenever I do a book or on an event, I like to put it in context and go back and show how we got there. So I really start um, where the story and the space race starts in October 1957, where, you know, the fat cat America, we were just think, sitting there, you know, still uh, basking in the post-war glow of, you know, being the conquerors and the winners, and we split the atom, and we're the smartest guys on the block, and all of a sudden, boom, October 4th, uh, Sputnik goes up this little beach ball size sphere, the first artificial satellite circling the Earth and going over the United States and beep, beep, beeping its way around. And of course, people, it sent people, Americans, into a frenzy. What was next? And, you know, nuclear bombs uh, dropped from us, a, a space station, a moon base. Uh, this was the height of the, the, uh, the Cold War. And people now don't really uh, fully understand, I think, a lot of us how serious the stakes were, you know, uh, the free world and um, capitalist democratic world versus uh, authoritarian communism. And, you know, the defects and weaknesses of communism weren't as known back then. It was very appealing to a lot of uh, smaller, less unaligned, non-aligned nations uh, throughout the world, dozens of them. Um, you know, who are trying to look for indications about which side of this global tug of war to lend a hand to. They wanted to be on the winning side. And what's more obvious and, and visible than, you know, the space race? So that threw us into a frenzy. Unfortunately, uh, both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican, uh, got together. And, of course, the Senate leader was Lyndon Johnson, who said, whoever controls space controls the world. Right. And it was made a high-priority program, and uh, that's how NASA was started, and the space race began. But the uh, Soviets were winning the first few years. First satellite, first man in space in 1961, Yuri Gagarin. Uh, first spacewalk a few years after that. Uh, first woman in space. First multi-man uh, crew in space. They were kicking our butts in space until about the middle of Gemini. Right. Didn't they have the dog up there, too? Didn't they send a dog? Laika, the yeah. uh, dog, uh, went up in the second Sputnik 2, which was a lot larger. And that was a much larger uh, satellite. And it showed clearly that, uh, yes, you know, nuclear bombs could be sent up there if they could do that. And, of course, the other thing was, why would they be sending a dog unless they were planning, they were experimenting and testing the waters with a mammal and they were planning on sending a moon, a man up there, which was obvious, uh, the obvious, obvious plan. Right. Now, now, so now JFK wasn't really up for it. Like most people just think it is. Like I watched the Apollo 11 movie that was just out, and I know that they promote his speech, but really it was Johnson that was kind of pushing before uh, Kennedy got on. You're right, Al. It was. Uh, Johnson had been interested in space since the late 40s, early 50s. And um, he kind of understood that, uh, you know, that was the new frontier before Kennedy used that phrase with it. And um, as I think I mentioned, uh, while Eisenhower was still president in the late 50s, he was pushing for a space program, which got NASA started in 1958. Um, Kennedy uh, wasn't much for space uh, when he got elected. But um, once he started learning more about it and meeting some of the astronauts and some of the missions began, he warmed up to it a lot. And, of course, in May 1961, he gave that 
speech challenging the nation to put, put in a man on the moon and bringing him back safely. That second part important, of course. Um, and actually, part of that was due to a few things. The, uh, the Bay of Pigs had happened a few weeks before, and uh, the United States looked terrible, of course, because of that, and, and that was egg on his face also, a major blunder early in his administration. And he needed something big to take people's minds off that, the world's minds off that, and something that could prove we could do something and beat the Russians. And um, he asked Johnson to take care of that, and Johnson talked to lots of people, Werner von Braun, of course, the engineer, master engineer, and lots of other people. And they told him, you know, if we really jump for a big goal, land a man on the moon, they don't have that's going to require huge boosters, huge rockets. Um, we can beat them on that. And that was uh, a lot of the reasons why he gave that speech. Yeah. You know, one of the other interesting things I, I think about this is, again, between Russia and the U.S., um, how they, you know, Operation Paperclip and how they were trying to assemble uh, a great Nazi engineers and scientists, and they got von Braun for the U.S. What was your thought on him? He's a fascinating individual. Um, a man, uh, I can't remember his first name, Neufeld, who did a biography of him, the, the best biography of him, um, I think cautiously came down on the side of uh, some kind of uh, forgiveness. Uh, you know, when he was, he was a young man in, in Germany and, of course, just loved space travel and the thought of it. And all he wanted to do, really, as a young man, was just, uh, you know, build rockets and go into space, preferably himself, as, you know, the astronaut or whatever. They didn't have that, that word yet. Um, in, in, in the middle, uh, early 30s, of course, Germany was still restricted as to what they could do militarily in terms of the, uh, the treatment, uh, I mean, the treaty following World War I. But he was approached by uh, someone in the Army to lead a a very, you know, primitive uh, missile program, and he did. He was still uh, in grad school at the time, but um, he was just a fantastic engineer and also a fantastic leader of men, um, which is kind of underrated. And uh, that program got larger and larger, and, you know, of course, guess who comes into power in 1933? Uh, Mr. Hitler. And, you know, pretty soon... Yeah. Uh, it's World War II, and he, Werner von Braun, had you know signed a pact with the devil. He he had to continue with them if he wanted to continue with uh, his dream, and of course it was subverted to V2 bomb, you know V2 rockets, the first true ballistic missile uh, that could go you know several hundred miles and and land in reasonable proximity to its to its target. Did a lot of. Uh, damage in England and uh, Belgium, I believe. Um, uh, he, was, he was kind of forced by Goering to join the SS, even though he didn't want to, but he realized he would have to or he'd be banished or taken out of the program. So he did. And um, at the end of the war, um, he and his, oh, about 126 people, his top people got together and they knew which way the wind was blowing, and they knew who was going to win this war. It wasn't Germany. And they thought, who do we want to work with to continue our plans to go to outer space? 
they didn't want to work with the Russians because the Russians had that reputation. They weren't happy with the Germans after uh, Stalingrad. And uh, they didn't think the British had the money, so they decided on the Americans. And uh, they sent Von Brown's young brother down the mountain where they were staying uh, near the end of the war to talk to the Americans who were down there, and one thing led to another. And we co-opted them and s scooped them up, about 127 of them, and uh, shipped them over to America to teach us all about ballistic missiles. Mm. Good move. Um. <laughs> well, at the time, you know, we they, they signed, I think, year contracts or something, uh, because at the time... We hadn't, uh, the war in Japan was still going, and, you know, it looked like from all signs that we may might have to invade, uh, you know, yeah. the Japanese islands and, you know, lose possibly a million men. And um, we needed all the help we could get. So he was originally co-opted and brought over here to possibly help us um, with some missile work uh, that would be used in World War II. But, of course... The atom bombs put an end to that. So he spent the next five years at Fort Bliss um, uh, working on missiles and showing the Americans everything um, they needed to know. And, uh, of course, eventually uh, was one of the leaders um, in the spaceflight program. Now, 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 the test pilots, how did they come to assign? Like, we know Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and, and Michael Collins were the... Um, the Apollo 11 people, uh, how did how did um, they go about picking the people they were, and finding them? Uh, well, yeah, uh, that's an interesting part of it. And, you know, the, the book and movie The yeah. Right Stuff, of course, which a lot of people are familiar with, that's the early part of the story. And the book's wonderful. The movie's a little less accurate, but it's still entertaining. Uh, they, <laughs> at first, um, they, when this, Space program was just getting off the ground. They had no idea what kind of people they'd need. They had no idea what space and weightlessness and uh, would do to the human body. They thought you might black out. They might uh, do something to your brain, uh, make you spacey, or start going crazy. Um, at first, they were thinking of putting out, uh, you know, uh, employment ads for people like uh, contortionists and circus people um, and mountain climbers, people who had done rugged things. But then uh, Eisenhower said, you know what, that sounds, I don't think we need to do that. We've got, why don't we just, we've got all the records of military test pilots, and they, they looked through about 500 records of military test pilots and uh, whittled that down eventually to 30, and uh, they tested, no, 31, they tested 31 in, in those legendary uh, test that went on for weeks, psychological, stress, physical, just unbelievable tests and uh, just some crazy stuff. They were just, uh, a lot of the space, the astronauts called them, you know, sadists, some of these, uh, these scientists and doctors, because they were just practically making up experiments, you know. But um, they whittled it down to seven, and that was the first uh, group of astronauts, the Mercury astronauts, you know, John Glenn, Alan Shepard, people like that. Uh, the next group that came out in 61 was Neil Armstrong's group. They called them the New Nine. Those were also test pilots. After that, they, and those were called from about 725 men. 
After that, astronauts didn't have to be test pilots. So the first two groups were test pilots. The next were not. But they had to have, you know, it was a high bar. They had to have thousands of hours, uh, jet time, pilot time, um, things like that. And they did go through tests, but nothing was as, as bad as those first ones that the Mercury 7 went through. Hmm. You know, the... Um do do we know how they got along and how and what really happened between the three pilots? We have a pretty good idea. I talked to two of them. Uh, Neil Armstrong died uh, four or five years ago, so and he was kind of a private individual. I don't know if I would have been able to talk to him, but you know, lots and lots of uh, interviews. A book was written about Armstrong with his corporation. Uh, that's as close to an autobiography as you can get. And um, it's clear some some crews for these missions, especially Apollo, which was a three-man crew, were like brothers. They showed up at the same time. They zoomed off uh, from training at the same time. They ate together. They partied together. Uh, not these guys. These guys uh, respected each other, but they weren't especially close. Their personalities were very different. Mike Collins was... Uh, fairly sophisticated. He had been the son of um, an army general. And army generals don't get rich in the army, but they are treated treated like royalty wherever they're stationed. And um, so he grew up, you know, uh, you know, in higher class uh, trappings and knew his way around a, a French wine list and, and a French wine cellar. Um, he had a good sense of self-deprecatory sense of humor um, real affable, very genial guy, although very intelligent. He was an excellent command module pilot. Neil Armstrong was very quiet and modest and unassuming. Um, he had an ego. All these guys had an ego. They were alpha males, but um, uh, he was, you know, very controlled and quiet. Didn't say much unless, unless he felt something had to be said. And Buzz Aldrin was, um, by his own admission, not someone who was good in social uh, situations didn't wasn't good at, at double talk. Uh, other astronauts and their their wives were terrified of being sit, uh, seated next to Buzz at some dinner or event because he'd go on about orbital mechanics or rendezvous, you know, two of his his passions uh, for hours. Um, and once you get Buzz Aldrin going on a subject, it's like turning on a computer. Uh, he was actually called uh, a human computer by some people. He was the most brilliant of those early astronauts. And, of course, we know he wasn't happy when Armstrong was uh, picked as the commander of the mission. Well, Armstrong was, was already the commander, but he wasn't But when Armstrong was picked as the man who would step out first onto the lunar surface. And Buzz, to this day, will tell you that... Um, uh, Neil Armstrong was not the first man on the moon. He and Buzz were both in the lunar lander and landed on the moon at the same time. So they, they both landed on the moon at the same time. Um, and he had been told at some point several months, maybe five or six months before uh, the July 16th launch, 1969 of Apollo 11, that he was going to be the first man out for a variety of reasons. But then... Uh, Yet some top NASA brass got together in a secret meeting and decided, who's going to be this? Who do we want as this Lindbergh-type figure who will be the most famous person in the world who will endure, you know, 
intense, uh, you know, perception from, from the media and the world forever. And they decided it was going to be Neil Armstrong, modest, unassuming, quiet Neil Armstrong, and not Buzz. They didn't, uh, you know, blame him for being ambitious, but uh, they just decided it was going to be Armstrong. And they told Buzz that it was because the lunar lander, which was very small, not much room in it, when they, their suits were pressurized um, to go outside, you know, they kind of ballooned up and almost no uh, space in there to maneuver and Armstrong was on the left down where the small door uh, opened up to, you know, get on your hands and knees and back out onto the outside porch of the lander and, lander and go down the ladder. So they said that's, they gave, they told us that was the reason that Armstrong had been chosen as the first man out. Jim, did they, um, we, we, we understand obviously the tests were quite, um, archaic if you like and quite spontaneous and not particularly well planned before the the, um, selection of the astronauts originally but what about the psychological impact was there any thought given to the impact in in preparing the astronauts for flight for what they'd experienced the aftermath and the effects on the family uh that wasn't well the family it's funny you bring that up um you know, that was back in the day, the late 50s, when, you know, uh, things were a little different than they are now. And uh, they were asked at the uh, the press conference announcing these seven men, you know, they were all asked about uh, questions. And, and each one was asked about what, you know, what his wife and family felt. And, you know, they all said, well, she's behind me 100%, pretty much, you know, variations on that. Mm. And um, it wasn't given much more thought than that, but whenever the wives were uh, interviewed um, and uh, they were always asked about what they thought about what their husbands were going to do, because this was back when rockets blew up regularly, and um, they were just, the, the, the press and the public, the American public and worldwide, seemed to be shocked that these women were seemed accepting that um, their husbands were willing to climb on top of, you know, a rocket that was a rocket booster that was meant to convey nuclear warheads and strap themselves on top in a small capsule and be sent up into the, um, into the air, hopefully into space, because no one knew what was going to happen to their bodies in space or whether, you know, the rockets would blow up. But everybody just seemed stunned that... Um, the women seemed fine with this. Do so no, there wasn't much, uh, much, you know, consideration given to that. And uh, there was a book written, oh, a few years ago called The Astronaut Wives. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Club that you might be familiar with. They, they did a, a one-season TV show about it also. Because uh, the, the women bonded together, of course, because... No one else, no other kind of wise could, uh, other kind of wise could understand what they were going through because it was a very, it was a unique thing that they were going through, um, being the wives of astronauts. And, you know, after a while, they, these astronauts got so busy training, flying all over the country at various places that were making various parts of the spacecraft, and they had to test them all the time. And, well, I actually helped them make these things uh, because all these astronauts had engineering backgrounds. They were expected to... Um, be kind of partners in, in this, and some of them barely got home. Maybe you know one day for their on the weekend to see their family and remind their kids that they had a father. Um, so there were all sorts of problems like that in, with the families. But as far as we know, there wasn't any kind of uh, preparation for the families in in regards to you know potential bereavement or no, the there wasn't at all. It, Wow. No, there wasn't at all. And when, you know, a few astronauts died in accidents, um, um, usually fighter, uh, well, jet accidents going, they, they spent so much time in um, with the, uh, jets flying around the country that, you know, it was inevitable that um, some of them were going to die. And I think four of them died in, three or four of them died in those accidents. But when the first major accident and the spaceflight program happened in January 1967 in the Apollo Command Module spacecraft uh, with Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, who were going to be the first crew to go into space 
aboard, aboard a manned mission of the Apollo spacecraft. Uh, and they died in January on the launch pad, ironically, not even in space, and in what they called a plugs-out uh, test uh, to see if it could the capsule could work uh, properly on its own power, in, internal power. And uh, they were working in, in retrospect, it seems so obvious that this was just a, a dangerous thing waiting to happen, but um, they were, the atmosphere inside the capsule was 100% uh, oxygen. And if, as anybody knows who's blown on a fire, what happens with oxygen in a fire is it, it's just absolutely uh, combustible. And all it took was a spark, and they had lots and lots of uh, combustible, non-fireproof, flammable things in, in the capsule, and it, everything caught on fire, and they were dead within a minute, um, mostly from uh, inhaling noxious fumes. They did get burned, but that's not what killed them. So that came as a shock. It almost uh, stopped the, um, the entire program. Uh, people were stunned at this. But um, nobody knew, uh, you know, that, that just came as a shock. And two of them were uh, buried in um, um, Arlington, and one was at West Point. And, the, of course, the, the families at that time, they didn't have many rights uh, to anything or any kind of pensions or anything. And uh, one of the uh, Gus Grissom's widow eventually sued NASA and uh, settled out of court. Well, I, mean, she, I don't know if she sued NASA or one of the... Uh, the command modules um, construction company, uh, North American, um, and settled for an undisclosed amount. And we understand I mean, this was such a significant event, such an achievement, that these guys, you know, that they were absolutely notorious, infamous afterwards for the rest of their lives, So, and, and continue to be. So how, how did they manage that? Do we understand how they how they managed that initial recognition, and they were heroic, weren't they, for a long time? Well, they, they were, and, I mean, when they announced these first, especially the first seven Mercury astronauts, they became instantaneous heroes, and they were a little embarrassed because they hadn't done anything. They were, you know, top-flight test pilots, of course, uh, but there were a lot of other test pilots that didn't get selected, um, and, and they hadn't done anything, and they were instant. Uh, celebrities, and you know, somewhat embarrassed by this, as I as I said, um, they nobody expected this. Um, they weren't given any classes on how to deal with the press or anything like as now happens with you know sports uh, young kids who get selected um, uh, high up in a draft or something who you know, start playing in the NFL or the NBA. They didn't have anything like that, so they had to kind of learn. It was touch and go. They had to learn as they went. Um, and when uh, the uh, Manned Spacecraft Center opened, uh, the, the NASA's headquarters moved to Houston in 1962. Uh, the men who were training, even though they hadn't done much, there was just constant demand all over the country for them as uh, to appear here and there, speakers, you know, be at the opening of this supermarket. You know, you could go on and on, the things that celebrities do. And they would, uh, they figured out a way they would, uh, they'd each take a week and they do a bunch of that stuff. They take a week off from training and they call it a week, their week in the barrel. And, you know, they'd go around the country and, and do various things, dinners and events, things like this, openings. Um, 
you know, sometimes White House or government related. And then they'd, they'd all take a, a week and take turns doing that. And none of them really liked it much um, because it was just so tiring and boring, of course. And it took them away from what they really wanted to do was train to go into space. And their, their experiences, you mentioned that they weren't particularly close. And yet they were they were sharing this this amazing experience together in which they apps their lives relied on the um, the yeah. responsibility of the man next to them. Well, you're absolutely right. It was a yes, and um, especially the same men on on the crew. Uh, mm. For instance, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong trained much more together than they did with. Uh, Mike Collins, who was the command module pilot, you know, the command module, the main uh, ship that all through the mothership, if you will, that all three of them flew. Well, they didn't really fly, but they went to the moon in. And then, of course, Collins was the command module pilot. And he continued to orbit uh, the moon while the next day Aldrin and Armstrong uh, slithered through a small connecting tunnel into the lunar module and um, pressurized it and uh, pulled away and, you know, landed on the moon. So that was the most dangerous aspect of it. So they trained hundreds of hours together in, in, uh, in simulators to do that and while Collins trained alone. And um, I talked to uh, a man who was a simulator uh, technician, and he worked with them, and he said sometimes when they finish a simulation or a, a, a test landing that there would be com complete quiet in the simulator and uh, you know sometimes it went on there wouldn't be any small talk and you know all the other crews they'd talk and laugh and tell jokes and between Aldrin and Armstrong they're hardly a word and sometimes the technicians uh, felt like that maybe they should go up and, and look inside and make sure they hadn't fallen asleep Oh, wow. So that tells you something. That tells you something about uh, the relationship between Aldrin and Armstrong. What, did they have, um, or have they spoken about particular fears that they had? I mean, clearly there would be the fear that this would go terribly wrong. But um, but any other fears that they had before they took off? Uh, they were asked that a lot, and I asked that. And um, there's a good amount of, of material on that from them uh, from the very early beginnings. Uh, of the program, the Mercury astronauts. Uh, Wally Sherratt uh, made a good point. He said, we trained so much that we trained the fear out. We, we trained the fear down to apprehension. And, of course, nobody liked to use the word scared or fear. Uh, although um, Gus Grissom did when he uh, returned from his uh, the second Gemini, uh, uh, the, the second Mercury mission. He said he was scared and uh uh, a lot of the other astronauts uh, kind of raise their eyebrows at that because they didn't want to admit they were scared. But they they trained so much at so many in so many ways uh, on different simulators that um, they got to know the, the the system so well and the spacecraft so well that um, you know they felt confident enough. Of course, they they both they all knew that anything could happen and. But they were impressed with uh, the safety standards, which were just, you know, way off the charts. Um, because they had to be. Anything went wrong with somebody, you know, anything goes wrong with a car on the road, and, you know, the car just stops, and you're okay. Anything goes wrong in space, and, you know, 
very good chance that you've got dead astronauts, uh, uh, you know, orbiting the Earth forever. Um, but they they all said they just didn't think about that because what was the point? Um, they were also asked, and everybody, some people asked me if I had asked astronauts this, didn't they have a poison pill that they could use just in case? Uh, well, I was going to ask that. I, well, yes, because a lot of people do. But, you know, they said, why did we need that? Um, first of all, we'd be way too busy trying to figure out, you know, how to get out of whatever situation we were in. For instance, Apollo 13, of course, which, which did go wrong when the oxygen tank exploded. Um, but even if it got to the point where it was absolutely hopeless, um, all they had to do was uh, depressurize their suits or open one of their ports or, you know, pull up their visor and, in you know, like 20 seconds, they'd be unconscious and dead within a few minutes. So nothing was going to, you know, that was going to work a lot faster than any poison pill. So it wasn't necessary. They just didn't give it much thought. And um, dying, the possibility of dying just and death just wasn't something they spent a lot of time on. Do we, do we know how much? I mean, we know that there was a phone call made from the president to, to them. There's that communication. But do, do they have communication at all with family members while they were on the mission? Uh, no, they didn't have actual communication with family members once the mission started. They could have, you know, patched in, just like they patched in the president when they were when they put up the flag on the moon. Yeah. They could have patched in uh, their a relative or a wife or something or the families but you know they they had a lot to do and uh, Apollo 11 especially was uh, you know they they just had a lot lot of work on their hands and once they landed you know they got out and they spent maybe two and a half hours out there and they had several experiments to, to do and they had things to do and they just barely had time really for the uh, phone call for the president so it just wasn't deemed um, necessary that, you know, their families talk to them uh, by phone. Uh, what, what was the plan, or did they have a plan, um, for if the astronauts didn't make it, or they weren't going to make it, or something happened, they run out of gas? You know, there's, there's you know, of course, there's... Um, gossip about suicide pills and things like that. Uh, right. Was there any such thing? Well, there wasn't um, because, you know, they were they were just trained to the nth degree and to figure out some way out if, if the situation arose where things took a bad turn. Uh, but, um, you know, if they had, uh, for instance, when Armstrong and Aldrin landed on the moon in the lunar module, they had, you know, maybe a couple of days of oxygen and power, uh, you know. So if they, you know, flip that switch, push that button that started the ascent engine, because they had an ascent, a descent engine, which brought them down, and then um, they had an ascent engine, which was different. If they pushed that button, it didn't work. They would have had a day or maybe two tops and there's nothing they could have done. Uh, Michael Collins in the command module might have gotten down to about 20,000 feet above, because he was many miles above 
orbiting the moon. And he might have gotten down to within about 20,000 feet orbiting the moon, but he could not have landed or gotten anywhere near the moon, anywhere near the moon's surface. So uh, if that ascent engine hadn't worked, uh, there's nothing they could do, and um, they would have died on the moon. Um, absolutely nothing they could have done. Uh, the funny thing is that uh, when uh, Aldrin was maneuvering in the lunar module to, with a pressurized suit, and uh, just before he moved, got down and moved out through the small door and out onto the porch, he busted off a piece of plastic that was absolutely necessary to arm the ascent engine. It was a circuit breaker, a piece of plastic circuit breaker. He busted it off, and he didn't know until they came back in, and he saw this black piece of plastic sitting there um, and figured out it was the ascent engine arming system. In other words, it armed it and made it ready so it would work when they pushed the button. And um, he told Mission Control, and they said they would figure out a workaround. You might have to go outside and putter around with some circuits or systems. But he suggested, he said, I've got a plastic pen. Why don't I stick this in and see if it will arm it, you know, with a circuit breaker. And he did it, and it worked. <laughs> <laughs> if it hadn't worked, yeah, they might have found a, a workaround, but um, who knows? Yeah. Well, you know, that, that also brings up a point of, of, of how long ago this was and and what kind of computer did they have on board what kind of uh you know um things were on board at the time compared to what we have now yeah let's talk about computers the, <laughs> the computer this was a time in the late 60s when mid to late 60s when a computer an ibm computer like a 790 or 794 took up oh you know, a large room, uh, and but they, but NASA told MIT they'd need something smaller. So uh, just a couple years before, this little thing called the microchip had been invented. So they ordered a, a million microchips, which, by the way, kind of um, really kick-started that industry. But... And they came up with this thing called the Apollo Guidance Computer um, that had, it was about the size of a briefcase. It was a disky, you know, display with a keyboard. And it had, get this, 72 kilobytes of memory and a grand total of one megahertz processing speed, infinitely <laughs> less than, than my old 6S smartphone, which has 32 gigs of memory and something like a 1.85 gig processor. There's a million kilobytes and a gigabyte. So there's several millions time, million times more memory and processing speeds in my 6S than was in that primitive computer. But the funny thing was, it was a dependable little thing. It was uh, a core rope thing. They had, you know, hundreds of little uh, of these microprocessor chips, cores, and, uh, you know, copper wire strung around them. Um, and it was primitive, but it, it worked for the tasks assigned to it. One of those was landing the lunar module on the moon, kind of. It could land them using uh, velocity and altitude, things like that. But it didn't know what was there, where it was going to land them, if you see what I mean, whether that was on the side of a, 
a crater or where there were some boulders, and coincidentally, when it was landing them, um, that's exactly where it was going to land them, on the side of a crater with lots of large car-sized boulders in it. And that's when Neil Armstrong took manual control, or a kind of manual control, and landed it himself. Wow. So that computer, the Apollo guidance computer, there was one on the lunar module, uh, one or I think there were two on the uh, uh, on the uh, the command module. Um, good for a few things, but uh, had its problems. Oh yeah. Very yeah. The first, uh, actually, kind of the first, uh, one of the very first portable computers, if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so uh, quite different. Now, what did they put? The, what did the astronauts have to go through, um, or put them through after they landed? Like, was were they in some sort of isolation or tests or anything? Well, the um, they all did very heavy debriefings of everything and every and, and discussed ad infinitum and ad nauseum every uh, anomaly. Anomaly being something that. Was odd, something that was off, something that wasn't supposed to happen. That was an anomaly. But uh, the Apollo 11 mission was special because they were going out, stepping out, and actually making contact with uh, an alien world, um, a cele- another celestial body. And uh, a lot of scientists brought this up several months before, probably a year or two before, and convinced NASA that they had to take precautions. So when they uh, got back, they were put in this you know, special uh, kind of um, uh, a, a large trailer that had been adapted for their use, and there were a few people in there, like a couple of engineers and a doctor, um, with them. They were supposed to be in there for three weeks to make sure that they didn't bring back any, you know, strange lunar organisms or germs that could, or bacteria that could possibly, you know, mm. cause havoc. To our system, you know, we've seen all those uh, TV movies uh, right around that time. A book, and a year <laughs> yeah. later or so, a movie called The Andromeda Strain came out that was exactly about that. But once they did that, uh, once they realized uh, the, the the moon was dead, dead, dead. There was nothing living on it, and it just wasn't necessary. So it was discontinued for uh, later missions. Wow, wow, quite a feat! And and when it took over four hundred thousand men and and people involved to. To, to pull this off? 400,000 men and women, Americans, working at 10,000 contractors and subcontractors because this was a high priority, and, of course, it was a race, and they weren't just letting one company do it. Uh, Grumman in Beth Page, Long Island, uh, built the Apollo Lunar Module, um, and North American in California built the Command Module, other parts of the country, other contractors uh, you know, companies did all sorts of other parts. 10,000 subcontractors, 400,000 people working there, making all sorts of parts, and also people, technicians, uh, scientists, engineers at NASA, at many uh, laboratories around the country, and, uh, you know, universities, things like that. So, yes, this was a, a, a group effort by lots of Americans, uh, and they prided themselves on safety, extremely high safety standards. Uh, one yeah. time, Gus, Gus Grissom, early in the, in, the, uh, in the program, Gus Grissom of the Mercury 7, 
was a, a short. He was about five six and very taciturn. He didn't like to talk much, but um, he was very sharp as they all were. Uh, he was sent during his week in the barrel to uh, I can't remember what large subcontractor, and he was supposed to get up and do a speech before hundreds of people that worked there. And he just get, got up and he said, "Do good work." And the people went crazy. They just loved that. They did posters with, you know, his face that just said, do good work. And, uh, and it worked. They, you know, all these companies pride themselves on their, on their safety standards because they had to. Because, you know, their lives, American lives were, were at stake. It's just amazing. <laughs> wow. Um, that's a lot of people to have in on the conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we I guess we got to that. Yeah. <laughs> That costs a lot, a lot of, of money. That, yeah, a lot of a lot of people, and you know, oddly enough, not one of them has said it was a conspiracy. Well, I didn't make any of these parts, and <laughs> you know, if they, I, I, I'm a skeptic in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm a skeptic about maybe Roswell, maybe the JFK assassination. You know what? The science is settled on this. Uh, it happened, um, and it drives me crazy that some people don't believe it happened. I mean, there's so much evidence. If you really want to look. There's tons of evidence on online, everywhere, in books. It happened, uh, you know, and, and if it would have been so outrageously expensive to somehow fake it if they could have. And if they were going to, why did it do it six or seven times? <laughs> you know, and if the Russians had known this, we were in a race with the Russians. The Russians would have known absolutely if this was faked, and they would have made that public. So, yes, it happened, absolutely. The, the Russians are in on it too. Come on. <laughs> oh yeah, the Russians were in on it too. Yeah, Some, you know, not the uh, what's that group that was is supposed to be um, of the behind the scenes people that that run everything. Oh, the I, deep I state. The, well, yeah, that well that too, and before the oh, deep the state, Illuminati. Was, yeah, the Illuminati. Yeah, I mean they're all part of it. They're all a part of this. I don't know what the uh, the final goal is if the Russians and the Americans are working together, but they still are. But we're not going to go there. No, no, we're safe. Well, uh, it's been a very, very good conversation. I love that. Um, now, do you have inf um, contact information or a website or anything that people could uh, contact you on and send you uh, pictures? Yeah, of sure. I'd, I'd love to hear anybody who's um, got questions or has read the book. Uh, yeah, um, I've got a website. It's jamesdonovan.net um, with all sorts of things about that book and my other two books and uh People are welcome to go there, and of course, the book "Shoot for the Moon" is came out a couple months ago, and it's wherever fine books are sold and, and other places online available. Uh, sure, fantastic. We'll have it up on our website as well, linked right below the player. So when once you listen to it, you can just do one click and buy it. So, James, thank you very much for taking the time to talk a little bit about your book. Oh, this was my pleasure and privilege. Thanks, Al. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.